Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, I know that you and I have both had fun in that particular world of shopping for secondhand vehicles lately, um, which is brings its own challenges and joys. Uh, I've had the same vehicle, a 1999 Jeep Cherokee, for, well, 24 years now. Uh, unfortunately, the the salt that road crews deploy here in winter in Vermont has annihilated the undercarriage, so I've finally been obliged to get something else. Unfortunately, I'm poor, so I can't afford the brand new EV that I would like to get. So I upgraded from a 1999 Jeep to a 2012 Jeep. And uh, of course, if you buy an 11-year-old vehicle for $10,000, it's going to have some problems. And I've already had to take it back to the mechanic once and possibly a second time soon. But but I have to say, there is one thing I am very proud of. The day I actually went to buy it, I got up early to do a bunch of Zoom calls. And I basically just rolled out of bed, threw a hoodie over my PJs and went to work. And then when I went to the dealer, I put on a pair of jeans, but I completely forgot that I had my PJ top on under my hoodie. So, yes, I, <laughs> a 55-year-old man, bought a car in my PJs. And you know what? I feel okay about that. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, listen, I think there should be very few restrictions on where one can and cannot wear PJs. Certainly, uh, <laughs> buying a car, fair game, if you ask me. Um, that old Jeep, it, that served you well. 24 years. Wow. May, yeah. may the new old Jeep last you as long as that one did. Uh, wow. But uh, yeah, spending a big chunk of money you didn't necessarily plan to spend. That's that's always tough. Um, whereas for us, we've known for a while that around this time we were going to have to get a third car. Doesn't make it any less financially painful, but at least we knew it was coming. Uh, my daughter turned 16 last December, got her license a couple of weeks ago. So we did some used car shopping, um, most notably. Uh, you know this already, Kieran, but the listeners don't. We found a car we liked online from a used car salesman. He was about an hour and a quarter away from us. Went back and forth a few times to find a good day to go see the car. We scheduled a day and time. We drove all the way out there. And he no-showed and ghosted us. Uh, so we kept looking. But but then uh, Robin had the idea that um, this will cost us more. But why don't we just lease a new car and give Olivia Robin's 2018 CRV? We know it has all the safety features and the Apple CarPlay and it runs well. She'll get that. Robin gets a new car. Everybody wins, uh, except my wallet. My wallet loses. Uh, but, um, you know, hey, uh, fingers crossed that uh, we still have a paying podcast gig in 2024, right? Yes. And, and meanwhile, your 16-year-old daughter has a nicer, newer vehicle than I do. And I'm fine with that. I'm right. I'm not. A, I'm, I'm totally, totally uh, OK with that and my and how my life has turned out. So that's good. That's good. <laughs> I will say there's, uh, with all due respect to a 2012 Jeep and whatever whatever amenities it may have, I'm guessing it doesn't have all the most current safety features, and thus I would not be permitted to buy it for one of my children. Sure, no, I get that. I got pretty good like curtain airbags and stuff like that. It is funny though. I, I recognize that for most people, especially somebody somebody who's like driven a 2018 CRV, my 2012 Jeep is probably just a box on wheels but after <laughs> a quarter century of driving a 1999 jeep right. it's like driving a limo i'm loving it it's fantastic <laughs> if you if you set your sights low enough it's pretty easy to be pleased so there I, you go 
I was trading war stories with some other parents of kids who are becoming drivers and trying to figure out what to what they're going to do about their cars and all that. And just trading war stories about the first cars we had that our parents got us like not just used cars, but like pretty beaten up used cars like our kids will never know the experience of. I wonder if it's going to start this time or I wonder if it's just going to stall out on me in the middle of nowhere. Like I had a car that I would drive it and sometimes it would usually it would start, but there was always the chance it would just sort of start shaking and I'd have to pull it over to the side of the road and wait a little while. And like that, the, these the cars these days don't do that, at least. Yeah, they just don't, do they? And it's a, like I remember when I was a, a, a wee young thing and my dad, you know, you'd have to. I first tried to learn to drive in the UK and failed. Back then, you had to like pull out the manual choke and even mm. get that just right to have the tone of the engine. Just like it was unbelievably complicated just to actually <laughs> move and leave the parking <laughs> spot, let alone anything else. So, but right. yes. now, now they're basically <laughs> self-driving. <laughs> exactly, and some are literally self-driving. Right. So yes. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. Uh, yes. Talking about self-driving, this podcast just drives itself. Ooh, nice. Still got it. Um, still got it. Um, look, if we could find a way to podcast through the pandemic when there were literally no boxing matches, we can find a way to podcast through anything. And the boxing schedule makers really have been testing us uh, of late. Aside from a KO1 win by an unretired Jamel Herring, and the Tony Ruddock exhibition, of which we will say no more. Mm. There are no fights at all from this past week for us to really consider recapping, uh, but we do have an appealing ESPN doubleheader on Thursday to preview, at least. Uh, we've got a fair amount of outside-the-ring news. I'll put Eric to the test with both his next top five assignment and another round of the fight game. And, of course, the Showtime celebration train rolls on, and that's where we'll start the pod this week by welcoming another special guest from the Showtime Sports family. In fact, a very special guest. Um, this is the 293rd edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. And if we've been part of your regular weekly listening over the last five years, our guest this week is the man to thank. In a moment of rashness, he hired us to be a part of his team five years ago, and now he finally gets his deserved moment in the sun. He is the Senior Vice President for Sports Programming and Content for Showtime Networks, and he's our boss, Brian Daly. BD, welcome to the podcast, buddy. Man, what an intro. I appreciate that, Kieran, and uh, great to uh, finally join you. It took some dire circumstances to finally get on. <laughs> yeah, we just we completely ran out of people to ask, so we're like, oh, I guess daily? All right, yeah. Closing time, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, so I'm remembering back to, to five years ago, HBO was getting out of boxing. I called my friend Steve Farhood and uh, he said, you should talk to Brian Daly. This uh, just just might be a great fit. And sure enough, you were concocting a plan for a whole Showtime Sports podcast network. At the time, it was going to be us, Paulie, Brendan Schaub, maybe Morrow. Five years later, it's us, Brian Custer, Morning Combat and all the smoke. Great lineup, uh, not the original vision. Uh, looking back, what what stands out as either an I was right about this or an I was wrong about that? Jeez, uh, good question. I think, you know, look, if we go back at the at the origin of, of the strategy was really to create a, a marketing platform, first and foremost, you know, as, as you guys know, we, we have a, a modest marketing budget or, or we did that we would put behind uh, our, our fights and our, our content that was on linear. 
And the idea of, of leveraging podcasts and investing a little bit of money into something that we could build an audience for ourselves and be able to speak to and market to was kind of at the at the forefront of the strategy, right? And, and to bring together just a, a group of fun, you know, voices that could could one bring an audience with them and to uh, diversify a little bit of the content in and around what we were doing uh, on Showtime Linear. So um, you guys uh, checked all the boxes, obviously were established, came from at that time, what was the leader in the sport and, and came with an audience as well. So it was a natural fit for us to align with some folks who, who had been doing it for a little while. Um, you know, same with Brendan Schaub coming from the MMA world. And, uh, you know, we got to work with him uh, over the course of Mayweather McGregor. Had a lot of fun with him. Saw that as an opportunity to bring in uh, a different audience as well. So um, that was it at the onset, trying to bring together a, a couple of different audiences and um, be able to, to market and speak to them in different ways and raise awareness of what we had going on, uh, on at Showtime. And, and of course, Showtime Digital is more than just the podcasts. It's all sorts of different stuff. And it dates back to well before that. I'm just I'm curious, what what were your origins with the company? When did when did you first come aboard and when did Showtime Digital first launch? Crazy enough, um, I 10 years on the dot. I, I think my first fight was right around this time. Uh, and then I started uh, after the new year. So it's been a 10 year run. You know, I came over with the idea of, of building out digital was was the first thing that I was tasked with. And we had some pretty good success um, building content across digital that ultimately fueled into linear. And, and you know, Stephen Espinoza, I, I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity that he gave me um, and the license really to just just develop and, and chase ideas. Right. So I don't think there was ever once where he, he really declined an idea. He just said, that's that's what you think will work. You know, go for it. So um, incredibly indebted to him. Uh, and digital content then expanded into cross-platform content and linear content. And, you know, as the world shifted, no longer was it digital or audio or linear. Um, and I think we were at kind of the forefront of that is looking at content as cross-platform and not necessarily one particular vertical. So um, I'm curious, actually, I guess I've never asked you this. Were you at all a boxing person before you came into this? And also being in this Boxing's weird, man. The business is just strange. And even though, you know, you're focused on on creating content, inevitably the whole business of boxing bleeds into to what you have done. And I have to ask, did you have an early experience of, oh, my God, what the hell is this business? What have I gotten myself into? Um, well, I think walking into it, I, I was probably that that casual fan who, who, you know, watched all the big fights, grew up watching Tyson and, and kind of the big pay-per-views. Um, and, and that was really the extent of my boxing uh, fandom. Um, I was incredibly intrigued by it. I was excited about the idea of learning kind of a new sport from from literally the ground, not knowing much at all. So, and I always liked boxing. So, I, I found that um, as as part of the sell uh, of of the job was was learning kind of a, a whole new sport, like I was a kid again. Um, that said, walking into the universe of characters and the world that boxing uh, is that I know now, um, there there was no anticipating that, and uh, <laughs> you know it was it was like nothing I've ever seen, and and still to this day. But you know, with that, I saw great opportunity. I looked around and I saw a lot of things happening that had been happening for thirty plus years, just because that's the way things were done or looked at, right? So. 
I, I was able to come in and use that to my advantage to have a fresh perspective and, and kind of push, push some limits and some boundaries and ask some questions and say, why aren't we doing it this way? Or could we ever thought about doing it that way? Have we ever, um, you know, tried this? So I, I think, and again, back to Stephen, allowing me um, to ask those questions and, and, and pursue ideas and answers. Uh, again, I'm, I'm forever grateful. And um, I think that wound up being, you know, helping me advance was just coming in with a fresh set of eyes and, and not having been in the space for a long time. Um, I think if you look at what we've built and you guys included, we've, we've created something that didn't exist before we got here. We expanded our brand tremendously um, to the point where I think, you know, we became the brand if, if that, if that doesn't sound too crazy, you know, in terms of social and digital, that's, that's 24 seven, right. And we programmed it as such and programmed it specifically um, that way. And I think, you know, as time went on, um, our brand exposure was, was more with fans than the, you know, not to say that the hours on linear and the actual events, that's paramount and most important, but the way we surrounded uh, the sport, I'm, I'm so proud of and so proud of my team, most importantly, because they're the ones who, who built all this great stuff in and around it. Um, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been quite a ride. I don't think you're allowed to use the uh, the term 24-7. That's a different network. You have, to, you have to work all access into your answer, I believe. Right, 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 right. It's a award, award-winning all access. Yes. And yes. There you go. Yes. yes. Um, so obviously, you know, your your greatest accomplishment is is bringing Raskin and Mulvaney into the fold. We know that. But uh, but those guys, Luke Thomas and Brian Campbell, aren't, aren't bad either. Um, do you get the credit for uh, for pairing up the, the morning combat guys? What's the origin story there? Great origin story. Uh, so I was familiar with uh, BC through the Mauro Ronaldo documentary uh, that we did and, and I produced and got to know Brian uh, just from a, a media perspective. He he covered that documentary for CBS. So I had met him at that point. Uh, concurrently, we were working with Shab. Shab had a good relationship with Luke Thomas. He had him on a few times and Luke really popped to me. I just thought he was, he had a great, you know, knowledge and presentation, just really liked his style. So, uh, Brendan had said, you guys should definitely get together. Luke's got some good ideas. Um, and then crazy enough on a New York subway, got on the one train and standing right there is, is Luke Thomas. Mm. So I said, Hey Luke, this is crazy. You know, introduce myself. He said, Oh my God, you know, let's, let's talk. So I said, all right, let's grab lunch. What are you doing? I think it was the following week. So we went, grabbed lunch. We sat down and uh, we talked and he said, Hey, look, I got, you know, at the time, and again, so much is timing, right? It's amazing. Like at that time he was right at the cusp of negotiating his new deal with Vox, wasn't happy with some things or looking at what other opportunities could be. Um, he talked about BC and the idea of them doing a, a show together and it just sounded right. So we said, all right, let's, let's figure this out. So in a matter of, of weeks, it went from like, you should meet Luke Thomas to bumping into him on the subway to hatching morning combat and having it launched all within probably a, a two month process. Wow. And uh, you know, however many podcast of the year awards later, here we are. Yeah, here we sit. And, and those guys, you know, that when, you talk about what, you know, what am I proud of? That's certainly one. And I, I think, you know, those guys created something from, from scratch that did not exist before, right, entirely. And then furthermore, created a, a fan base with it of, of just passionate fans who 
really count on that show. I mean, they're, they've created a community that is, is really cool and special. So, um, you know, that's, that's one certainly that uh, I look back on and, and have a lot of pride in. And of course, you know, it's, as Eric said, it's not just boxing. Um, all the smokes are really big part of, of, of what you do. And if I understand correctly, that existed as an entity that you brought over to Showtime. Is that correct? Can you tell us about how that all happened? So that was another one just, you know, kind of by, by uh, the universe putting pieces together. Uh, Matt Barnes was interviewed for, uh, we were working on the DeMarcus Cousins documentary at the time. And uh, Matt uh, had met our, our director on, on that documentary, Eric Newman. Uh, Eric said, you should, you should connect with Matt. He's got a lot of good ideas and just a, a great guy. So we wound up connecting, having a couple of drinks out in uh, Santa Monica, and he kind of just said, "Look, I, I have, I believe in my ability to to have conversations that other people cannot. Um, I want to do that." Uh, Stephen Jackson comes with me, and uh, you know we're, we're going to have a lot of fun. So I, I just got it. I understood kind of. I first of all, you could you could tell Matt's talents from the work he shared and the conversation we had. I felt it, and then. Um, you know, there was just no anticipating where that was going to go. But um, yeah, it was hatched over a couple drinks and, and we kind of talked about the general idea of it. He came back with the, all the smoke name and uh, we went with that. And, um, you know, there was no shortage of meetings with lawyers and, and some folks at Showtime having to get them comfortable with, with the name and the idea. But we got there and, uh, you know, that's another one that that we're super proud of and again, created a lane that really didn't exist more so than morning combat. I mean, that, that whole thing set off a, a, a movement and a, and a lane that exists now that, that was not there prior to those guys doing that. Yeah. It's like uh, just about every basketball player active or retired seems to have a podcast now. And so, so those guys really, uh, really were the pioneers on that front, huh? Yeah, for sure. And then the springboard to building out, you know, the broader, Showtime basketball uh, right. vision, which has been a passion point for me. That was, you know, my sport growing up and playing and um, love it very much. So the idea of being able to, to, to build uh, a, a basketball universe here would have been a dream prior to getting here. And uh, it's, it's just been, uh, it's been a blessing being able to, to bring all that together. With, with that said, getting to work in basketball and see how, the NBA operates and how mainstream it is and how successful it is. Does it make uh, having to be part of the boxing world uh, that much more frustrating is, or maybe that wasn't quite the right way to, to phrase it, but you know, does it, does it further amplify the, the challenges of covering boxing because the NBA is so mainstream and so efficiently run and boxing is, is the wild, wild West. Yeah, I think, they both come with their, their pluses and minuses for sure. You know, in terms of uh, they're totally different worlds. Um, the level at which the NBA operates and the leverage and the power that they hold, I would say at times it's frustrating as a content creator. Right. Mm. Um, whereas boxing is a bit of the wild west and you could kind of go in and, and really do whatever you want uh, the other way. Right? right. So, um, yeah, each world is, is different. I think what, what I've found and what we've, what we've tapped into that, uh, that wasn't happening prior is that cross section of fans that you have a lot of NBA fans who are boxing fans, a lot of boxing fans who love the NBA, a lot of players and a lot of boxers have uh, admiration for each other. So 
you know, the idea that we were able to tap into some of the basketball guys that were big fight fans and, and inject them into the, the fight universe, um, was, was a lot of fun. And, and I think we're going to start seeing more of that, you know, Steven Jackson, particularly, I think is an incredible talent and we've been able to figure out a way to, to get him involved where he's bringing a different audience into the fight game and, and vice versa. And I think that's at the core of what my team and I have always tried to do is just bring new eyeballs, new audiences, new fan bases into the sport. Um, you know, and I, I guess maybe that's a good segue. Like Jake Paul is a good example of that in his own way, right? He's brought a whole new world into boxing for better or worse. But, you know, I think from our standpoint, it was always just how do we broaden our audience? How do we expose people to the sport that, um, you know, maybe weren't uh, all the way in? One thing I'm always curious to ask people about, people like yourself who uh, spend a lot of time at different sporting events, is how a live boxing event compares to some of the other big sporting events you've been to, and also whether you have a favorite live boxing event or even a couple uh, memory that over the last 10 years or so. It's funny you say that. I, I say that all the time. I've, I've been fortunate enough, I think, to, to have been to all, all the big ones, and there is nothing that compares to a big fight. Um, the, the energy... Uh, the nervousness for me personally that mm -hmm. it set off as if it was a relative fighting in the ring. I can't explain it. Uh, I used to have it when Hulk Hogan would wrestle as a kid and I would get so <laughs> nervous that I had a, I couldn't even watch it. I'd have my dad tell me if he won or lost, but um, I, I digress. Uh, but yeah, I think there is nothing that matches a big fight from the atmosphere, the nerves, the adrenaline, the idea that it could be over in any second. Um, truly to me better than a super bowl better than a, a final four or or anything else for that matter um in terms of memories i mean i have definitely a few i i think the one that comes to mind for me that was just impactful and fun story to go with it uh was a wilder fury one mm -hmm. um that just, that had some energy to it. I had never, that was my first big heavyweight fight. Like truly felt just bigger than anything prior that I had been to while at Showtime in LA, good crowd. Um, and just the way that fight went down. And then the, the, the knockdown of, of Fury when he got back up was one of the most amazing things I've, I've ever witnessed with my eyes. I mean, as you guys know, the whole the whole building, everyone at home thought it was over, right? I mean, no shot of him getting up. And then he, he you know, rose up and obviously the fight finished the way it did. The fun uh, story part of that was I was bouncing around that night. I didn't have a, a signed seat. I had a credential. And I just scurried just as the fight was starting. There was a, a one seat that freed up in the corral next to Jim Gray. So fortunate enough to, to grab that. He waved me over, said no one was sitting there. Uh, and then quickly thereafter, the, the last seat was uh, Floyd came and sat down. So Floyd inside the corral watching that fight. Floyd had some wagers on the fight that he you know shared with me <laughs> as he was sitting. So now he's hitting my leg, hitting my arm and stuff's happening. And I had to pinch myself like, you know, I'm sitting here watching this fight next to Floyd. Uh and we're laughing, joking about his bets. He did have Wilder, so he wasn't happy with, with the outcome. He thought it was over, obviously celebrating when when Fury was down. So 
um, yeah, that was just a really cool moment sitting between Jim Gray and, and Floyd Mayweather for that one. But yeah, I think that one comes to mind. I think Mayweather McGregor, just for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, the absolute spectacle that that thing was, was nothing like we had seen prior or since. Um, so the energy and the, and the, you know, the, the fans battle the MMA and the boxing fans, like kind of just the, the banter and the battling that went on up into and through that was just so unique and different and for the most part, good energy. So, um, that's another one that, uh, comes to mind top ahead. I, I was like waiting for you to uh, end that story with the, that Mayweather bet the draw at like 20 to one or whatever it was <laughs> as, as if he needed that big payout. <laughs> Yeah, that, he might have posted that, but I don't. I don't think that was in the slip that, that I saw. Okay. So, as surreal as a fight like that and an ending like that is, there are sort of different kinds of surreal moments. There's, you know, the things we see in the ring on the basketball court. That I'm curious for other moments, maybe that that flash through your minds that are surreal for you in terms of maybe someone you got to meet that kind of blows your mind when you, when you step back or someone you got to work with that, that uh, is particularly surreal or even just someplace you got to go. Are there some of those sort of memories that stand out? Man, it's like too many to even wrap my head around, to be honest. I mean, the, the 10 years has really, I mean, just been such an incredible journey and, and taking me places that I never could have imagined. Um, you know, everything from, from sold out Wembley for, uh, Joshua, uh, Klitschko, which I believe Kieran, you were there for, right. That was the first time Showtime and HBO had worked together, uh, while I was there, but you know, that was an incredible atmosphere. Um, you know, obviously all the, the fights here, uh, you know, a range of different things. Uh, the basketball stuff has afforded me, uh, some, incredible opportunities to, to meet and, and interact and work with, you know, a range of, of basketball players I, I grew up idolizing. And, um, you know, that's, that's been phenomenal. The documentaries have each brought um, their own kind of bit of surrealness uh, and, and, you know, amazing opportunities too. So I've been so fortunate to be able to, to touch a lot, to do a lot, um, but there's really, a, you know, nothing that stands out if you ask, you know, as you ask me right now, I can't tell you what exactly pops. It's just a, uh, it's just 10 years of, of amazing stuff kind of bouncing around in my head. I'm assuming then that you never somehow randomly through this job got a chance to meet Hulk Hogan, because I feel like based on what you said before, <laughs> that would have stood out as the most surreal if it had happened. I did meet Hulk. I got oh, to meet well, Hulk. come on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I'll do you one better. He was with Jimmy Hart, so I got a two for one. <laughs> oh, wow. nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. We got to meet him at the March of Dimes luncheon, which is a pretty big deal where, you know, I think everyone in sports pretty much comes together and and uh, and does a, a really great thing for the March of Dimes. And uh, he was like the keynote special guest that surprised everyone and came out. So I was uh, I was like a fanboy. I was a picture I, I had to grab. So I'll, right. I'll share that with you guys after. Yeah. Um, Another good one. I mean, if we're going to go wrestling, we had the undertaker at a recent fight. We got to spend some time with him. That was amazing. Um, Ric Flair is a big fight fan and uh, you know, a few others. So it's, uh, it's been fun to cross that universe uh, while here. Um, The final question I want to ask you, the sort of elephant in the room, we haven't really talked about it yet is the fact that we're at episode 294. There won't be an episode 394. Um, Showtime sports is, done at the end of the year and it is not because of anything that showtime sports has or has not done it's just a very strange 
time in the media industry, sports media, media generally. Do you look at the state of the industry going forward with excitement, with nervousness? How do you see it playing out? Is linear dead? Is everything streaming and, sh and, and digital henceforth? And, you know, is, is boxing just a part of the many things that are being carried in this great wave of media change? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it could be all streaming at this point. I don't, I don't think that benefits the sport. You know, if, if it goes to a streamer um, that doesn't have the ability to, to market it to non-boxing hardcore, I think then you're limiting the sport to really just the, the hardcore, right? I think linear is still very important to have, um, at the very least, the, the marketing and visibility capabilities that linear still comes with and the audience that it still comes with. You know, not everyone has transitioned to, to streaming yet. So I, I think it's a ways off before you can say a, a streamer all in would, would be the right move, especially for, for boxing. So I think it's really important that it maintains some type of linear connection. Um, that's, that's my opinion, while also probably having some, some world or, or a majority of it possibly living on streaming. Um, but I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, as far as the industry on, on a whole, I think it's just, it's at a bit of a reset point. I think the last five years have been crazy and there's been a lot of, uh, you know, kind of norms and ways of doing business that happen that are probably going to reset and not going to be able to sustain. So I think we're going to see a little bit of a course correction or a market reset, but at the same time, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for whoever's stepping into it. Um, I mean, we're coming off of our, our greatest year in, in history by way of, of pay-per-views, by way of overall volume. Um, if you look at our, our social and digital metrics, I mean, tremendous growth year over year continued, even you know through this year. So everything points in the right direction. You now have fighters um, you know, wanting to, to truly fight each other. I think I give Tank and Ryan a ton of credit and Errol and, and Crawford even more so. But, you know, I think what we're seeing there is there truly are no losers in, in those types of situations. Now, obviously, Errol uh, took, took a bit of a beating in the ring. But I think as time is going on, people are looking back and now gaining a respect for him to say, hey, well, you know, at least the fight happened and the guy stood in there and, and went out on his shield. So, um, I think all that said, like the sport is peaking and that's what makes this whole thing, you know, really tough to, to comprehend is like, well, what do you mean? We're, we're, we're just about to hit it. And, um, that's the unfortunate part, but on the other side of that, there's a hell of an opportunity for, for someone or, or a collection of folks who want to come in and, uh, and take what's out there. So. I think it's a reset point. Look, Showtime, unfortunately, is going away. The sport is certainly not. And wherever that goes, uh, the cream is going to rise to the top and, and the, the right folks and surround will, will go with it. Do you want to stay around boxing? Great question. I, I do. Yeah, for sure. I think I need a 20 second timeout or I need a you know, <laughs> standing eight count to, to make the right analogy. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I absolutely I, I love it. Um, and I think once you're exposed to it, it's like kind of hard to leave. I don't know. I just, I, I can't imagine my life without it. Now to what degree I, I maybe stay in it. I think that's up for conversation, but I, I could never see fully walking away from it. And um, 
look what we what we built on the digital and and audio podcasts and social side um there's still a lot there so i i have a tough time walking away from that and i have a incredibly talented team that has has built all this so it's my hope to to keep some of that going beyond showtime and you know we'll figure that out but too many talented folks and uh too much that we have here today to, to see it go away. So I kind of want to finish what we started. All right. Last topic, Kieran, you're dismissed. If you want, you can hang right. up. Uh, the, the, the listeners may uh, want to fast forward a couple minutes, but uh, we got to talk Bruce for, for just a couple minutes here. Yeah. Give me your all time favorite uh, Springsteen song album and live concert experience. Oh, okay. Three good ones. Um, Song for me, um, it's Prove It All Night or Promised Land. So that's okay. going to indicate favorite yep. album. <laughs> yep, it sure does. Uh, Kieran, uh, uh, for, for you, you may you may not have connected the dots, but that makes Darkness on the Edge of Town his favorite Bruce album. I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Promised Land is great. I mean, there's some lines in that that I hear, and Wrecking Ball is another one where I hear it right now, presently, and uh, it, it resonates with, with all that's going on. Um, and that's the beauty of Bruce, right? Like, his catalog, his albums speak to you over the course of your life. And there's an album or a song that may not have hit two years ago that you hear today and it stops you in your tracks. So, um, you know, that's, that's what Bruce is to me, not to get uh, sentimental and, and corny here, but um, yeah. So darkness is, is the album. And then as far as the show goes, I think, I don't know. I mean, the most like I look back, I think that the 99 run when the band got back together uh, mm-hmm. for the first time in a long time. And uh, I was straight out of college, had introduced Bruce to a lot of my close friends there. Uh, I grew up going to Bruce shows with my father. So it was this great connection point of uh, experiencing some shows with my dad, my friends from school, bringing together kind of two generations. And uh, I don't know if the band has ever sounded as good as, as that. 99 run they came back with just such awesome energy and kind of a fu mentality uh that we are the best and we're going to show you so um i think those are those are probably my my best memories of uh of bruce shows yeah i got i got to see one of the shows on that 99 tour and 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 i feel the same way it was just like the shows they were putting together and the way that they sounded were incredible. And I'm a, I'm a born to run guy first and foremost, uh, but with darkness as my runner up second best album. So. I look over born to run because it's just too perfect. I don't even really acknowledge it. It's on such a pedestal. And that was, that was the first one I got into. That was the cassette and my parents car. So like that was, I remember hearing that song as a kid and just immediately took to it. So yeah, I don't, I don't mean to, uh, to dismiss or disrespect born to run that's that's i think on a whole nother level um and then to bring it full circle i think actually you know what my other live show or or maybe you know the best at this point was the one i got to take my family to uh this year Mm. so to be able to to do that with my kids and they fully enjoyed it so we passed the test of a a (laughs) seven nine and eleven year old which is remarkable uh, and again, and and, and, and if they liked it, that means you'll keep them. Uh, the, the, had, exactly. had they rejected Bruce, it might have been touch and go. It was a big moment, right? Exactly. And uh, again, you know, having grown up going to the shows with my dad, and then being able to be there with my kids was uh, was a tremendous thing. Awesome. Well, buddy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and uh, thank you for the last five years, and uh, congratulations on the last ten years that you've been in the gig, and. Uh, 
he's uh, looking ahead and who knows where we'll be uh, six months or a year from now, but hopefully it's in a good place. Thanks again, Brian. Well, I appreciate that guys. And, and the, uh, the appreciation is, is mutual as you guys know. Um, appreciate you believing in, in the vision at the time. I didn't have much to sell uh, other than <laughs> we're going to try and make this happen. And as you pointed out, that lineup didn't quite materialize, but uh, you guys, uh, I guess, are the longest tenured kind of anchor of, of the network that we built. So um, thank you for that. And uh, this is certainly not goodbye. It's uh, we'll be seeing you soon and we'll, uh, you know, I'm, I'm confident we'll, we'll be working again down the road. Thanks so much to uh, Brian. I, I'm really glad we got to have him on. He's been yeah. great to us all these years and, and I do hope we all get to reunite on some platform in the not too distant future. Plus, I realized in a meta moment, you got to talk with the boss about the boss. <laughs> yes, I guess I did. I guess I did. And 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 you now have your homework assignment, Kieran. Uh, listen to the Born to Run album and the Darkness on the Edge of Town album, and you're the deciding vote. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that challenge, actually. I don't mind that. All right. Uh, all that Showtime talk leads into this week's news main event, which is a collection of items about the rest of the 2023 Showtime calendar and the first inkling of news about the 2024 PBC calendar. Uh, let's go chronologically. In addition to the four pay-per-view fights on November 25th that we have discussed, we now know a pair of lead-in fights that will stream on the Showtime Facebook and YouTube pages. A 10-rounder between 140-pound contender Sergei Lipinets and Michel Rivera, and a 10-rounder at 154 pounds between Vito Milnecki Jr. and Alexis Salazar. On December 16th, what is expected to be the final Showtime Championship boxing card, Dan Raphael of ESPN is reporting that the main event is likely to be David Morrell versus Senna Akbeko in a 12-rounder at Super Middleweight. And the most intriguing bit of news is that the Nevada Athletic Commission shared that PBC has held the date of January 13th, 2024 at MGM Grand for a boxing card, quote, to be televised on pay-per-view. Uh, there are all sorts of conclusions one could jump to based on very little information there. Um, care to jump to any, Eric? Uh, any thoughts also on the newly added fights for November and December? Uh, I'll save the jumping to conclusions for last and, and address the more known quantities first. I love Lipinets Rivera. That's, uh, that's kind of too good for a pre-show stream. That could be a Showtime Championship boxing co-feature. I, I love it. Great fight, quality fighters. I'm psyched for our friends uh, Brian and Luke to, to get to call that. We may have to even, I think, maybe include that among the fights we make official picks for next week. That would be a first, making picks for a, a pre-show stream fight, but uh, we can discuss it off air. But I, I think it's worth considering with that one. Um, Salazar, he's a, a solid test for Milnecki. He's uh, he's one of those gatekeeper types who only loses to top talents. He's lost to Carlos Adamas, Sander Zayas, guys like that. Um, I don't believe Milnecki is on that level, so should be a tough test. Morel Agbeko, you know... Agbeko is a good, tough fighter. It's unfortunate for him that he's in with David Morrell because I think there are some top 10 super middles that Agbeko can beat, but I don't believe Morrell is one of them. But uh, Agbeko was originally supposed to be Morrell's opponent in April on, on the Tank Garcia undercard, and he didn't get medically cleared, so Morrell fought Yamaguchi Falcao instead. I can say with confidence that Agbeko would have done better than Falcao did and will do better than Falcao did. This is a solid fight, if not a fight where it's tough to identify the favorite. Uh, okay, on to the conclusion jumping. So 
Uh, we've heard various rumors about the networks PBC is talking to, and it's been reported a bit that there's one network or, or group of networks in particular, but that deal may take a while longer to get done. The idea of PBC doing a January pay-per-view card suggests to me those reports are probably true, that, that Al Heyman is currently making plans in case there's no deal finalized yet at the start of the year and is prepared to do pay-per-views to start the year until a deal is done. I mean, he's got to keep his fighters active one way or the other. But at the same time, you don't want to take a bath on a pay-per-view. You want it to be something that makes money, which is why I will go ahead and, and jump to a full-on conclusion here that this will be the return of Tank Davis. That's my prediction for this. I think, you know, put him in with a halfway decent opponent and you'll sell just fine. So, yeah, my, my guess is the rumors are true that PBC has a deal pretty well lined up, but the timeline isn't syncing up perfectly, so Al is going to bridge the gap with a pay-per-view or two or three or six. Uh, I don't know if, if those sound like reasonable conclusions to jump to to you, but they're the ones I'm jumping to. Mm, that's good. I was just as you were starting to to jump to that particular conclusion, and and we've said that phrase so much. I keep thinking of Office Space now. I mean, <laughs> yep, yep. And just picturing us there with our jump to conclusions, Matt. <laughs> um, but just before you said that, I thought, oh, I wonder if he's going to say Tank Davis. That would be a good shout. So they, yeah, that would make some sense. That would be interesting. All right, we'll we see. shall see. Yep. Uh, in other news, we have yet another boxer in trouble with the law for a combination of driving and firearms. Uh, unbeaten heavyweight Jared Big Baby Anderson was arrested Monday in Ohio on charges of improperly handling firearms in a vehicle while knowingly under the influence and operating a vehicle under the influence of alcohol or drugs. He was released after spending about eight hours in jail. Bud Crawford's brief period holding all the welterweight belts is over. He's been stripped of one of them because he can't make his mandatory defense if he's taking a mandated rematch with Errol Spence instead. And Boots Ennis has been elevated to title holder. Uh, for the December 23rd date in Saudi Arabia, which was initially intended for Fury Usyk, and then there was talk of Francis Ngannou headlining, now ESPN's Dan Raphael reports they're eyeing a card featuring Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder in separate bouts, possibly with Dimitri Bivol fighting as well. The likely opponent for Joshua would be Otto Valin, while Wilder is penciled in to face Joseph Parker. Uh, Jake Paul has his December 15th opponent. It's a pro boxer, 10-1 and 1, Andre August. ESPN's Michael Rothstein is reporting that on January 20th, Michaela Mayer will move up to welterweight and challenge Natasha Jonas in the UK. And last item here, congratulations to Hall of Fame publicist Lee Samuels on his retirement. He's finally kicking his feet up at age 76 after nearly 40 years with top rank. Lee was a sports writer in New Jersey and Philadelphia in the 70s and early 80s and made the move into PR for top rank in 1983 and remained there until now, except for a brief stint in the 90s working at the Las Vegas Hilton Sportsbook. He was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2019. And good luck finding anyone in this sport to say a bad word about Lee Samuels. Kieran, you've known Lee a long time like I have. Comments on him and the rest of this news? Let's build up to Lee because, as you okay. said, Lee is the best. Um, let's start from the top. I hope this was an unfortunate, isolated incident with Jared Anderson. Honestly, with some of his statements about how he's already looking forward to retirement and so forth, I hope all's okay with him and that he's focused on what he needs to be focused on and um, and that he's going to be okay and, and have, have a good career in the ring. But uh, yeah, let's just hope that was just an odd, isolated incident. Um, by the standards of alphabet groups, I quite like the IBF. 
by that standard of alphabet groups. Um, but this is a terrible mistake by them um, uh, giving the belt to Boots. I, I recognize they're following their rules, but it isn't a good rule. Um, look, it, it just goes to emphasize what we said countless times before. Undisputed in the sense of having all four belts doesn't matter. Lineal matters. Yes. There is one welterweight champion of the world. And as much as you and I both love Boots Ennis, it ain't him. Not yet. Um, I'm definitely intrigued by Mayer versus Jonas, and I will certainly tune in for that. But the heavyweight news is literally and figuratively the big news. I'm sure most people would rather see Joshua and Wilder face each other after all these years rather than different opponents. But these matchups could be intriguing. Valene in particular feels like a huge risk for Joshua. Mm-hmm. Um I make Wilder a bigger favorite against Parker than Joshua against Valine, but I like both those fights. But man, Valine just feels like a terrible opponent for somebody who appears to still be working on his confidence. And and I get it, right? At some point, you have to fish or cut bait. AJ isn't getting any younger. But gosh, that's tough. Um, I, I think uh, our, our buddy Joseph Parker will provide some tough opposition for Wilder until Giante just breaks through with one of those big right hands. But you know what? Those aren't bad matchups at all. Um, which brings us to Lee. So back in 2003, I decided that I wanted to write a book about boxing in Las Vegas. I had no background in boxing at all, but it was just something that I decided I wanted to do. I started showing up to a couple of events. I reached out to some PR folks, Gordon Absher at Mandalay Bay, Scott Gertner, MGM Grand, Lee at top rank. And instantly Lee was welcoming and immensely helpful. As you mentioned, Lee's an old newspaper guy. So he understood what journalists wanted and needed liked helping them get what they wanted and needed um and very soon after he showed up he invited me on a two-day trip with a couple of other journalists to big bear to visit the mosley and deloya camps before their rematch and when at the urging of kevin ioli i moved to vegas for a while while i was working on this book i made sure to find an apartment that was very close to the old top rank offices Mm. and many a day i would just walk from my apartment to top rank just to chat with lee and learn um you like coffee I like coffee. Lee loves coffee. And no matter what time of the day I showed up, Lee would offer me a cup and we chat. And honestly, I would just listen um, and learn. Uh, Lee is the most even-tempered, calm, quiet, kind guy you could want to meet. Just the opposite of what you so often encounter in boxing. And I've really missed working with him over the last several years since, since Top Rank went exclusively to ESPN. I really wish him the best in what I hope is a very long and enjoyable and healthy retirement. He's really one of the good guys, and, and I know you wish him well, too. Yeah, I I, I have a quick uh, Lee Samuel story to share, but first I'll just comment on one of these other news items is that I've kept hoping that there wouldn't be a big December 23rd fight because I'm leaving <laughs> for vacation on December 22nd, and, and it complicates what will be our final Showtime podcast. Um, but yeah, it sure, sure looks like I'm not getting my wish there, um, but... I am very eager to see what kind of price I can get to bet on Otto Valin. Uh Please, please, bookmakers, yeah. please make him like a plus 500 underdog or, or longer, perhaps even against AJ. I feel like it's possible. They've underrated Valin in the past, and I was able to uh, win some nice uh, money on his fight against Gassiev. I'm hoping they underrate him again because I do think he's he's a live underdog there. Um, so my Lee Samuel story, uh, the year was 1999. I was on my first boxing trip to Vegas. Uh, this was for Lewis Holyfield, too. Jack Welsh recommended I go to the top rank office while I'm in town. So I talked to Lee and 
he had just been gushing weeks earlier over an article I'd written about one of their fighters, Mo Harris. Um, and I won't lie, it was it was a good article. Uh, it it I, it particularly had a great lead that I was very proud of at the time. Um, but but Lee especially loved it. So he said, "Come to the office." He'd show me around, and he greets me enthusiastically. Boy, what a great article about Mo Harris! And he introduces me to various people. He took me into Bob's office. He took me into Todd's office. He introduced me to Bruce Trampler. And each person, it's Todd, this is Eric Raskin from The Ring Magazine. He's the guy who wrote that great article about Mo Harris. And not a single person reacted to the Mo Harris thing. Um, you know, they all shook my hand, <laughs> said, said, nice to meet you. But but Lee was hyping me up as the guy behind the Mo Harris article. And they all responded to that with blank stares as clearly none of them had read this epic Mo Harris article. <laughs> I don't know. Just a, a funny little thing that, that sticks with me. But um, but a cool thing about that trip to the top rank office Eric Morales happened to be there at the same time I was. He was with uh, Fernando Beltran, his manager. And Lee was like, hey, you want to interview Eric Morales? Um, yes, <laughs> I think I'll do that. So uh, so I sat down with Fernando Beltran translating. I had no prepared questions. It, it was like one of our Radio Row interviews, kind of. Um, I just started recording and made up questions on the fly and talked to Eric Morales for 20 minutes. Uh, this was uh, like a couple of weeks after his win over Wayne McCullough. So um, anyway, I've gotten kind of off track, but uh, happy retirement, Lee Samuels. Yeah, that's a great. That is exactly the, the joy of just popping across to those top rank offices in those days, mm -hmm. especially when he was around. Yeah, you just didn't know who was going to be there. Yeah, that's an awesome story. I love that. I yep. love the fact that he was the only one who read the article. <laughs> it was pre it was pretty clear that, you know, they would like nod along like, OK, whatever, whatever you say, Lee. But I, yeah, I'm sure none of them had read the article. Fantastic. All right. All right. Let's play the fight game, shall we? Yes, ladies. I am. Um, this is one of those, I think, I know every week we say, we're not going to preface this, and every week I do. <laughs> right. There's a pretty good chance, I think, that you'll get this very early on. Hmm. Um, okay. If you know if you know the fight, then you'll get it pretty early on, I think. But, um, you know, no pressure. Yeah, anyway. I, can, I can only disappoint from here. Exactly. All right, clue number one. This world title fight saw one Olympic gold medalist defend his championship against a gold medalist from the following Olympics. Okay. So an Olympic gold medalist defend. You didn't say who won, though. You didn't say defend successfully. Is that correct? Oh, I will say defend successfully. That was defend just an error successfully. on my part. Okay. All right. Yes. So the, the, the Olympic gold medalist from the previous Olympics successfully defended against one from the next. Um, Okay, so I'm trying to. Th so what I have to do now is is, and maybe this is a mistake, but be careful not to think only U.S. Olympians because there are gold medalists from other countries as well, and it's possible one or both of these people were from another country. But so I'm thinking of like, did Sugar Ray Leonard or one of the Spinks brothers or whatever defend against anyone who won an Olympic gold in 1980? Did one of the 84 U.S. Olympians? who won a gold medal defend against someone from the 88 Olympics. Uh, did Oscar ever successfully defend against someone from the 96 Olympics who won a gold? Um, I know he defended against a 96 Olympian in Fernando Vargas, but that he did for Vargas did not win a gold. So um, there are not there. Are, there's nobody coming right to mind who, who actually fits this. I'm trying to think. I feel like 84 and 88 
I should be familiar with a lot of the the gold medalists from those teams. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to clue two. I've thrown a bunch of names out there. I could be you could all it also could be like Ali and someone from the sixty and sixty four or something, and I'm way off on time frame. So I'll just uh, stop uh, stop rambling and ask for clue two. Okay. The challenger dropped the champion for a count of two in the second round, but for the rest of the fight was battered consistently until the referee, himself a former world champion and future Hall of Famer, counted him out in the sixth. Okay. So it was a KO six. The challenger scored a flash knockdown in round two. So the fact that the referee was a former champion makes me feel like I should go back a little further because I feel like that was more of a 50s, 60s, 70s kind of thing to have. Like I, I was recently reading or hearing about some fight that like Bob Foster was the referee of. Um, so, or what are there? Are there other notable former champs who became right there? Oh, there's, I think didn't Jersey Joe Walcott went on to do, wasn't he the referee in, was it uh, the Lewiston fight uh, that he, he was, was the referee, referee in? Lewiston okay, fight. but I mean, that's obviously not the answer here because uh, Sonny Liston was definitely not a 1964 Olympic gold medalist. But um, yeah, so it's like that era that former fighters um, tended to do some refereeing. So the challenger scored a flash knockdown in round two, but the champ battered him the rest of the way and scored a knockout in the sixth. Let's see. George Foreman won gold in 68. Did he beat any 72 gold medalists? He tangled with gold medalists from like 84. And no, actually, Holyfield didn't even win the gold anyway. So, but he he spanned many generations. Boy, I'm doing a lot of uh, a lot of talking and dropping names and not really landing <laughs> on anything that feels like it could be a correct answer. So uh, I have defied your expectations that I might get it early. Let's move on to clue three. And this will help, uh, I think. Despite the flash knockdown, the challenger was dominated so completely that writing in Ring magazine, Matt Fleischer opined that, quote, he has utterly no future as a professional boxer. The challenger fought on, though. He lost his next fight, but soldiered on for four years before retiring with a record of 15-7-1, with eight of his wins and six of his losses coming by KO. That's quite a long clue, so I'm happy to give you that again. Uh, I think I may now know who and what this is. Okay. Uh, so I don't think you need to repeat the clue. Although if my if my guess is wrong, uh, then I may ask you to repeat the clue because I, uh, <laughs> I I will probably have missed a detail. But was this by chance Floyd Patterson defending against Pete Rademacher? It was. All right. Okay. Yeah, you gave me just enough in, in that clue to help me uh, piece it. The the final record of what was it 15 mm. 7 and 1 that yeah. that was that was where it clicked for me that oh this guy did not have a long career oh i guess maybe it was that guy who uh who <laughs> who turned pro by challenging for the heavyweight title against uh, against Floyd Patterson and thankfully i was able to conjure his name i don't know if you if you had a contingency plan if i basically knew the fight and was just like Floyd Patterson against that guy who turned pro <laughs> again against him. Yeah, you might have gotten half a point because obviously we're we're scoring this. Um, you might have <laughs> right. gotten half a point for that probably, but yes. Um, 
the clue four would have been it was the second defense of the title for the champion, but his one-sided win didn't impress. Despite the fact that he won by KO after knocking down his foe for six rounds, Fleischer wrote that, quote, he had best forget that he ever faced the Olympian. He was a big disappointment. Analysis of the degree of disappointment is unnecessary. It is too deadly obvious. That Fleischer was mean. Wow, yeah, that's tough. I don't I that one thing I did not know about that fight is that Patterson's performance was was panned uh, to the extent that that, that Nat Fleischer at least. Uh, I think I think because Rademacher hung around until the sixth or, mm. or 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 so forth. But um, and the final one, and this is where I would have hoped that you knew the name. Right. The final clue was for Pete's sake, Floyd. <laughs> this was the worst heavyweight title defense against a professional debutant ever seen, for the next sixty-six years, anyway. Right. Yeah. That. Those were good clues and well doled out to kind of gradually get me there. Um, I imagine there are a lot of listeners who would never have come up with it just because they don't know of that era and of that famous fight of a guy turning pro uh, by challenging for the heavyweight title. But um, but, you you know, you write the clues knowing that I'm your audience and that I'm probably familiar with this fight. So, uh, uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about the fight until I was chatting to our buddy Chris Dixon in the aftermath of the Puri Nganu debacle. Mm. And uh, and he brought that up. And, oh, yes, I should have thought to bring that up in context when we were talking about that fight. But there you go. So, yes, the, the worst heavyweight title defense against a professional debutant until. <laughs> That's right. Oh, <laughs> if Fury. only Nat Fleischer were around to rip the <laughs> oh crap out of Tyson Fury. Um, so the full details, Floyd Patterson was a 1952 gold medalist, although at middleweight. KO6, Pete Rademacher, 1956 gold medalist. August 22nd, 1957 in Seattle, Washington. And the referee, you were in the right uh, weight class. Uh, it was the former light heavyweight champ, Tommy Loughran. Oh, okay. All right. Was, was the referee. And apparently part of the reason that it went on so long was because Loughran just would like get to nine and seemingly one each time I wanted Rademacher to keep going. So it was like nine, <laughs> nine and a quarter, <laughs> nine and a half. Interesting. So there you go. All right. I learned a few things along the way there. Good, uh, good edition of the fight game. Um, let's move along to some previews. There are a few notable cards in the week ahead, though. I'm not sure Carlos Cuadras versus Pedro Guevara in Uzbekistan on Friday rises to the level of preview worthy on our podcast nor do the DAZN fight Saturday between Diego Pacheco and Marcelo Caceres or the ESPN Plus fight from England between Denzel Bentley and Nathan Heaney. But there is one card that is absolutely worthy of proper pre-fight analysis on ESPN on Thursday from Las Vegas on the eve of the big Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix. Pound for pounder Shakur Stevenson faces Edwin De Los Santos for a vacant lightweight belt and Emmanuel Navarrete defends his 130-pound title against Robson Concesao. It's clear who the favorites are here, and it's clear that Top Rank is building toward matching them up. But, Kieran, uh, do you see either underdog as live? And which of these two bouts interests you more? I think both underdogs are live-ish. Concesau fell well short against uh, Stevenson, of course, but he arguably got ripped off against Oscar Valdez when he first took a shot at that brass ring. Um, Navarrete is such a difficult guy to fight. He has that range, that punch output. He's such a challenge. And um, of course, Valdez couldn't really get close to him and what we've been hoping would be a really fun showdown. I fully expect Concesau to put in the kind of sterling effort that we've come to expect from him. But 
ultimately to fall short, probably by unanimous decision would be my guess. Mm -hmm. Stevenson de los Santos is a little intriguing. I mean, Stevenson is by far the superior boxer here, right? right? As you said, he's a pound-for-pound talent. But styles make fights. De los Santos is tough and awkward. The guy hits tremendously hard. Uh, If you watch his third-round stoppage of Jose Valenzuela, you can see why he might be able to give Stevenson a tough time, and also why he might not. Like, he tore into Valenzuela from the off, dropped him twice, forced Ray Corona to, to step in. But he did also leave his own right hand low a couple of times and got dropped himself. Um, a lot depends here, I think, on on, on how close De Los Santos is able to get to Stevenson. If Shakur can keep turning him, not give him a chance to plant his feet and put his power behind his punches, it's going to be a frustrating night for De Los Santos. Um, but I do think Stevenson's got to be able to do that all night because... I don't think he wants to really stand there in front of him uh, more than he needs to. Might get a bit hairy down the stretch for him. I think the big disadvantage that De Los Santos has is I'm not sure he has a great deal of variance in speed. I think he comes in mm. at fifth gear and stays in fifth gear, whereas yeah. Stevenson, of course, is so, so much more adaptable. And I do think that the Shakur's talent is so off the charts good. I, I think he'll be able to overcome whatever challenges De Los Santos brings and come away with, with a win here. I think, again, a unanimous decision. If he does have an off night and De Los Santos has a really good night, it could be a difficult, difficult evening for him. But against almost anybody else, I'd give De Los Santos a pretty decent chance. It's just that Stevenson is so good that um, even with his strength and power, I think De Los Santos is, is going to fall a fair bit short in the end here. Uh, is that something you agree with? Do you see an upset? And actually, sort of added to that, you mentioned that this fight is on Thursday because of the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Want to see more quality midweek fights like this more often? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I miss Tuesday night fights. I mean, it's been off the air for 25 years now, and I still miss it, kind of. <laughs> um, but even even if we're not talking about like some regular weekly midweek B-level kind of show, I do wish the boxing power brokers and networks would put on good shows like this on a, on a Wednesday or Thursday or whatever. Occasionally, um, this one is actually up against the rare good Thursday night football game. Usually Thursday night uh, ends up being just trash matchups week after week. But uh, this one's going up against Bengals and Ravens. So so that won't be great for ratings, but it should still do well, I would think. And. Uh, I'll also note, watch for lots of betting related talk on the broadcast because ESPN is launching its branded betting app, ESPN Bet, this Tuesday. So uh, I don't know if Joe Tessitore knows all the betting lingo, but uh, if not, he'd better start boning up. Um, But anyway, you know, especially with the way that midweek network TV has diminished, like, are there any scripted shows on any night on NBC, CBS, ABC that that aren't you know we're not talking live sports or reality tv or whatever scripted shows that anyone watches anymore i don't know um it it makes for an opening for for boxing midweek so i I hope this starts a trend even if in this case it is just a one-off due to the big f1 race um as for the fights themselves the betting odds kind of tell the story of a side and b side in these fights at the first sports book i checked navarrete is minus 1300 concesal plus 700 stevenson is also minus 1300 the los santos plus 720 so they're pretty much identical we've seen navarrete have the occasional off night mm-hmm. and conceso has proven himself to be world class you know he tested oscar valdez he handed xavier martinez his first loss he even won three rounds on steve weisfeld's scorecard against shakur um that's pretty good um i figure if navarrete brings his a game he wins if he brings his b game 
this is a toss-up. Um, except that we know what tends to happen when a card is intended to build toward a bigger fight. Yeah. And the fights go the distance. See uh, Oscar De La Hoya versus Felix Sturm, for example. I think Conceição is going to need to win very clearly to get the decision. De Los Santos, boy, he is dangerous. Um, he, he boxed his way past Joseph Adorno in Atlantic City last time out. But he, like like you were hinting at, I don't imagine he's going to try to box with Shakur, at least not for long stretches. In most of his other fights, he's played the role of puncher. He, he can bang. Can he catch Stevenson? I highly doubt it, but I, I think there will be an edge of your seat quality to this fight if he's letting his hands go. But, you know, in, in the end, I guess I would sooner bet Conceição at plus 700 than De Los yeah. Santos at plus 720. But I actually think the betting move here, I'm waiting for some of the specific odds to come out. But I think the move may be a Stevenson by decision, Navarrete by decision parlay. That's probably what yeah. I'm looking for here. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right. Let's conclude this week's podcast with this week's top five challenge. And the challenge this week is a continuation of our look back on 37 years of Showtime boxing. Many boxers have offered expert analysis on Showtime over the years, from Mike Tyson to Ray Leonard to Chris Bird, among others. But there have been five principal long-term regulars. Bobby Chase, Antonio Tarver, Paulie Malamaji, Abner Mares, and Raul Marquez. Your challenge skim through their records and come up with their combined best five wins. How does that oh, sound? Wow. So give me the, it was Chez Tarver. I was jotting them down, but I missed. Mm-hmm. Oh, Paulie, I think was the one I didn't. Paulie, Abner right. and Raul. Yeah. Okay. All right. I had no idea where you were headed with that. And I was starting to think, are you going <laughs> to ask me to rank them as commentators? And yeah, if so, cool. that is very unfair because I kind of have very. to put the ones where that we have on the show frequently at the top uh, or, or, or risk, uh, uh, taking an actual beating from an actual Xboxer <laughs> next time I see one of them. So I'm glad you didn't go that route. So it's so say top five wins or performances, which did you say? So I plumped for wins. That's yeah, fine. I stick with wins. There's, there's enough we'll to go around wins. between these yeah. guys. So top yeah. five wins that any of those five guys scored That's as professional correct. fighters. Uh, all right. This is a uh, boy. You got creative here, but I like this one. This is good. This is the one I told you I think a week ago. Like, oh boy, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, this is this is fun, but I'm I'm disappointed you didn't uh, you know allow me to choose like any of Al Bernstein's amateur fights. You know he did have an amateur boxing career. Could have included him in this. Uh, could have included uh, Brian Campbell. You know getting into fights in the hallway at school and in the early '90s high school. Uh, you know there. I I'll stick with these five, but you, you you could have given me more to choose from if you'd wanted. To. And there would have been there would have been. Even under that scenario, no Barry Tompkins, who was at pains to point out when he and I co-hosted when you were off somewhere, that mm-hmm. he's never been in any kind of fight, amateur, professional, schoolyard, or anything <laughs> at any stage in his 110 years, or <laughs> however long Barry's been around. Right, right. Uh, yeah, that that sounds uh, in keeping with the Barry Tompkins I know. Who, who Right. He does not seem a temperamental, let's get in a scrap sort. And <laughs> and who would want to get into a fight with right? Barry Tompkins? No. Exactly. Plus, for his last, you know, 50 years, he's been hanging around with pro boxers. So who'd want to do that with him then? So <laughs> Right. Yes. <laughs> All right. That will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Our thanks again to our boss, Brian Daly, for joining us. We will be back next week with our post-fight thoughts on the Stevenson de los Santos card and a full-fledged preview of the November 25th pay-per-view headlined by David Benavides and Demetrius Andrade. Until then, thanks as always for listening. 
Be safe, be kind, and be good.